The Treasury Department's Bureau of the Fiscal Service recently launched a government-wide marketplace for agencies looking for financial management services. The Bureau says it exceeded its cost savings goal by having more agencies adopt shared financial services. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman got an update from the Bureau's Commissioner, Tim Gribben. The vision for the marketplace is for us to offer solutions and services that comply with financial management standards and, and other common capabilities across the financial management sector to make it easier for agencies to focus on their unique needs that support their missions through a common set of solutions. And we also are looking for the marketplace to to add value to agencies by helping with that acquisition process to make it more efficient and a better value on in terms of being able to execute on an acquisition faster. So the marketplace was launched in December of 2022. And in the marketplace, what you find are the three federal shared service providers, which is Treasury's ARC, our Administrative Resource Center, the Interior Business Center, and also Transportation's Enterprise Service Center. So part of the marketplace is what do federal shared service providers offer? And the other part of it, and this is what's really exciting to me as well, are the commercial providers who are available. And we already have three commercial providers that are offering their services on the marketplace, CGI Federal, HIC International, and just as of this past week, a company called eMentum. We have additional vendors that are going through the onboarding process. And so these vendors are offering financial management solutions and services that agencies can use today. And they are vendors that then you can easily procure through through the GSA marketplace. We are also, we have the marketplaces open for solicitation of the core financial systems that will be cloud-based solutions using these standards, these federal standards. That solicitation is open now, and we expect to have the those vendors available by this summer. So that's also very exciting for us to to envision what this marketplace is and having solutions already appearing on it. We are continuing our mission to provide exceptional operations and financial management services that agencies and the general public need. So from the FMQSMO standpoint, uh, we plan on adding more vendors to the marketplace. Uh, We're looking at our payment integrity tools, providing a more robust and integrated payment integrity experience. That's really what our focus on is the next year or two as we look at further expanding the digital collection solutions that we're able to offer. To look at this in terms of what the Bureau has been able to move the needle on here, one thing we have seen in this progress statement is that through shared financial management systems, the Bureau has managed this cost avoidance of more than $600 million back in 2022. Can you unpack that a little bit more and explain what that kind of means in terms of the bottom line impact for other agencies? What that means is just putting in simple terms that if each agency or subcomponent of an agency that was running its own financial system, its own procurement system, its own travel system, it would have to fund the licensing costs associated with that, the system development costs, and how you integrate that with your other systems, resources you have to spend on testing, as well as the personnel costs. And when you are able to centralize that, you achieve cost savings. So that's where that 605 million comes from is rather than each agency having to do all of that, we do that in one case and then provide that benefit to multiple agencies so that that rather than spending money on licensing 
system development, they spend it on their core mission instead. So they can translate that into delivering more for their customers by using a, a shared service, a shared license, shared personnel, those kinds of things. Obviously, the Bureau is in a position to flag improper payments before they go out the door and address them. And that is something that has been on a lot of people's minds in the past couple of years, just given what we have seen from COVID relief programs and the sheer amount of money that has gone out the door. In this progress statement, it looks like things are trending in the right direction. But just tell me from your perspective on things, what is the Bureau looking to do in the coming years to further reduce those improper payments? This focus on payment integrity is is one of our priorities. And there's two different ways of looking at it. It's stopping a payment before it goes out the door or it's stopping an obligation before it's even made because it shouldn't be made. And the Bureau, we have the Payment Integrity Center of Excellence that looks at developing tools that are helping agencies identify these things. Like we've worked with FEMA, we've worked with the IRS as an example. And then we have our Do Not Pay, which is a tool that provides a number of databases that helps determine whether a payment should be made or not. Our focus for this year is those were previously in two separate organizations within the Bureau. We're bringing them together under the Office of Payment Integrity, and we're envisioning what does that future of payment integrity look like, and how do we interact with agencies to provide the services that they need, as well as the states who are administering federally funded programs and how do we look across states. So we're thinking about everything from looking across state lines to providing more resources from an analytical perspective within the federal government. So there's a lot on the horizon. The thing that limits us is the financial and personal resources that we have and the ability to to be able to do that. So we look to be able to provide these services to agencies in a cost-effective way to help not just mitigate improper payments, but to root out fraud. So there's a lot. We were constantly piloting and looking at tools. Last year, we piloted a, an account verification tool that says, yes, uh, jewelry that is you gave us this account, we can identify that that account is something that's yours. And we've we turned that from pilot into program because we've determined that it has been effective. It's tools like that that we're, we're constantly evaluating. And, and we work closely with OMB. We work with GAO on the Joint Financial Management Improvement Plan on what are some of these payment integrity services that the federal government can and should be offering and how Treasury can help satisfy that need. Okay, quick follow-up on that pilot that's now gone bigger and better. What kind of verification goes into that? What is the criteria for verifying whether it is, in fact, me or someone else trying to get that payment? This is where we work with the financial management community. So the commercial banks who help us with this, who, so we use a combination of, we have information about disbursements that we make and whether we've made disbursements to a certain account or not. So that's one way. And another way is through the banking community to say, yes, this name is associated with this account. And, and so then we can have more confidence that when we're getting an instruction to pay somebody through a particular bank account that we can verify that that truly isn't a bank account that's owned and controlled by that individual by using a couple different methods. So that's what we piloted to see whether that would be effective or not. And we determined that it absolutely was. Tim Gribben, Commissioner of the Treasury Department's Bureau of the Fiscal Service, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines my mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. 
they never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire 
Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.